Let us pray together. Gracious God, we thank you that even while we were lost and alienated, while we were still your enemies, you sent to us your Son, Jesus Christ, to lead us on to a journey ever deeper into communion with you. And so this morning, as we hear your word, we pray for your traveling mercies in this journey toward you. And we pray through Christ, our guide. Amen. We sometimes think that if the church just had the right outreach, just had the right mix of music, just had a better and fuller hospitality that all of our neighbors and all of our relatives would suddenly see the light and joyfully turn to God. But in our Gospel reading today, from Matthew 11, we find people being unresponsive and turning away from Jesus himself. In the first half of Matthew's Gospel, chapters 4 to 10, Jesus enjoys great success and huge crowds wherever he goes, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing people's broken bodies and minds and spirits. But now in chapter 11, the chapter that we're in today and the one to which I invite you to turn if you'd find it helpful, we suddenly discover a profound shift as Jesus now encounters steady apathy, steady unresponsiveness, and sometimes just out-and-out opposition. In fact, in chapter 12, just the chapter after our reading today, we find some people even starting to plot to kill Jesus. And so, we can now begin to feel the shadow of the cross slowly falling over the life and the ministry of Jesus. Now, verse 20 singles out three cities in particular, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Jesus lived in Capernaum, and the folks there were his neighbors. The baker made his bread. The cobbler fixed Jesus' sandals. And just a bit up the lake shore, the folks in Chorazin and Bethsaida also witnessed his teaching and his preaching and his healing, and still they refused to recognize, to see the time of their visitation from God. In verse 19, we hear Jesus say, that wisdom is vindicated 
by her deeds. Four centuries before Jesus, in the book of Proverbs, God's wisdom was depicted as a woman. Sometimes called woman wisdom, sometimes called lady wisdom, who urged people to receive the deep insight and the deep counsel that comes from God alone. And here in Matthew and also in Luke, this same wisdom is now portrayed as being embodied and walking among us in Jesus. But still, people don't respond. Verse 17, we played the flute and you did not dance. We wailed and nobody mourned. John the Baptist, you see, came as a teetotaler, living on his strange, very strange diet of locusts. And everybody accused him of being demon-possessed. Jesus comes and does the exact opposite. He is a friend of sinners. He shares his table openly with everybody. And what is he called? A glutton. What else? A drunkard. No wonder he asks, to what shall I compare this generation? To what would he compare our own generation? What are the ways that we as well respond to Jesus with apathy, unresponsiveness, and out-and-out opposition? Have you ever wondered why some people yearn for God and others never do? Why do some people slowly fall in love with God from their earliest childhood days? Or turn to God after a time of turmoil as an adult? while others go to their last breath seemingly with no need for God at all. I've talked with many parents who've wondered about this. I have wondered about it as a pastor. And this is surely a great mystery. But in verse 26, we catch a clue from Jesus. We hear Jesus marveling in his prayer to God about the special openness that infants, infants, and he's referring to his disciples and to those who are weak and vulnerable, the special receptivity that these folks have to him and to God. 
You see, God can work best with those whose hands are open. When our hands are tightly closed, whether because of self-sufficiency or rejection, it's hard for God to take hold of us. And so Jesus finds his most receptive audience among those who know their need for God. The unprivileged, the sinful, and the poor. They have the advantage. During my recent prayer retreat in Colorado, the monastery's abbot preached a powerful sermon in which he said, we are most accessible to God and to others, not in our success and perfection, but in our weakness and vulnerability. Oh, Lord, did I feel convicted. I spend most of my life trying to be successful and perfect. But that's not usually how we connect with God and each other most beautifully. In your own life, dear friends, how has an experience of vulnerability opened you up to God in a new way? I wish we could spend the whole morning sharing your stories. And if you have one, you can share it in our community lifetime. Back in the 80s, in a story that I've shared with some of you, Danette and I went through almost a whole decade where we had no connection to the church and very little interest in God. We were doing very well vocationally and financially, thank you very much, feeling very self-sufficient. But then came my parents' divorce, which shook us down to the core. I felt sometimes like a building where some of the pillars had been pulled out. Where could we go to find the solace for the grief that we felt? Where could we find the grace to forgive? Where could we find the role models we needed for a marriage that was lasting and loving? Not in ourselves, we suddenly realized. Ever been there? And so our search led us back to God and to God's people. And as I began to read the Bible again, as if for the very first time, Oh boy, was Jesus especially powerful. His words and his teachings. And I felt the Spirit of Christ bringing me to a deep repentance. Tears. For the brokenness and sin, not in my parents' life, but in my own. And after my spiritual awakening, some of the first words that I memorized were the words of Jesus that we hear today. Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Finally. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In those days, I felt especially drawn to Jesus' first words, Come to me. Come to me. As you are. Come to me wherever you've been. Come to me whatever you've done. Wasn't it wonderful this spring? I think it was back in March when Glenn Roth shared with us that his granddaughter, Anna, when asked to summarize the gospel summarized it with one simple word, come. And we heard that invitation three times in the book of Revelation in our final reading this morning. But after we come to our Lord, He gently and humbly invites us, verse 29, To learn from Him. To become His apprentices in kingdom living. He invites us to follow Him. To emulate His body language and His gestures. To make His mind our mind. His ways of peace and reconciliation. Resisting evil to become our ways. Because the more we become like Jesus, the more we become who we really are. The more we lose ourselves in Jesus, the more we find ourselves. Another great mystery. Now, this learning that Jesus talks about happens, he says, in verse 29, as we take upon ourselves his yoke. Now, all of you dear urbanites, and I'm one of them, this yoke that Jesus is talking about isn't the middle part of an egg. If any of you have been to Africa or Asia, you've seen this yoke. Maybe some of you remember it here in the county. A piece of wood that is fastened on the necks of two animals. Very interesting. Two animals usually. So that they can pull a plow or a cart. Now our translation today that Jesus' yoke is easy doesn't quite get at the original Greek. A better translation is that this yoke fits us well. Fits all of us well. And allows us each to be Christ-like even in the most difficult or demanding circumstances. I remember here the wheelchair that was especially made for my brother, Chad, with foam that was molded to fit his curved back. 
even with his scoliosis, even with his epileptic symptoms, this chair allowed him to function to the full extent of his abilities. In the same way, Jesus' yoke, which he carries with us, by the way, helps us to fully leverage our gifts and our abilities for the sake of the kingdom. Last of all, Jesus promises us his rest. Now, wait a minute. Is this the same Jesus who just in chapter 10 and then later in chapter 16 calls all of us to take up our cross? How can there be any rest in taking up our cross? Well, let me give you a few examples. When Jesus calls us to forgive those who have deeply, deeply wronged us, it can feel nothing short of impossible. Amen? I guess nobody's experienced that here. I have. But then when we finally do begin to forgive, we suddenly feel a deep peace and rest. When Jesus teaches us to share our wealth, we say, no way! It's mine. I earned it. But then when we finally begin to share it generously, we experience the joy of seeing others have their burden of poverty lifted or suffering lifted because of this. And we again feel a deep joy, a deep rest. When Jesus calls us to turn away from temptation and to live in covenant faithfulness in our circle of family and friendship relationships, it can feel like a great sacrifice. Especially when we see everybody else around us breaking their covenants. But then later we discover a deep shalom in our lives free from the relational carnage and wreckage that so many others are experiencing. When the Spirit of Christ calls us to speak out against racism or homophobia or the violence of empire, His yoke can feel unbearably heavy. But when we step out in faith, we find ourselves set free at last from fear. And again, we feel this deep, deep rest. The rest that Jesus promises us, dear friends, is not a vacation down in the Caribbean. Sorry about that. Nor is it a pass from serving others. It is the deep shalom that comes when we take up our cross and we follow Jesus. We rest in God and we rest from the hatred and anger 
and anxiety that consume the lives of so many people around us. I sent out an email this morning with a picture. It was very late. How many of you received it? Okay, good. It's a story, or I'd like to tell you or close with a story this morning about the very important sequence of Jesus' words to us this morning. First, he says, come to me. And then he says, learn from me. During my prayer retreat in Colorado, three beautiful people served as spiritual guides and cooks for our group. And I sent a picture of these three people. When my family got back to Lancaster from our vacation just recently, I learned that one of them, Paul Ilecki, had died suddenly, uh, just last month, of sudden illness. And in my grief, I went back to my journal to remember Paul. He was a dear man. And I came upon something that he said to me in one of our spiritual direction sessions. Although Jesus first says, come to me, and then he says, learn from me. Paul told me that we Christians often reverse that order. Get your act together, make yourselves worthy of God's love, and then you can come. Then you are welcome. Paul then stunned me by saying that Jesus' bread and cup should be shared with us downstairs in the lobby as all of us enter the church on Sunday morning. This is how much God loves you. This is God's unrationed grace. There's nothing you can ever do to earn it. Nothing you have to do to be worthy of it. All you can do is receive it with open hands. It's only after we have been nourished by God's grace that we should then spend the rest of the morning, he told me, asking ourselves, in light of the grace that we've just received, what do we need to confess? What relationships do we now need to make right? How now shall we live as our grateful response to God? Amen.